Acute respiratory distress syndrome was first described in 1967 and has become a defining condition in critical care. Around 40% of patients with ARDS will die and survivors experience long-term sequelae. This week in the BMJ, we're publishing an easily missed article on acute respiratory distress syndrome and I'm joined today by three of the authors. I'm Kate Adlington, a clinical editor for the BMJ and I'm joined by Professor John Laffey, consultant anaesthetist and professor of anaesthesia at the National University of Ireland in Galway. Hi John. Uh, hello Kate, how are you? Good. I'm also joined by Professor Sh- Cheryl Misak, Professor of Philosophy at University at the University of Toronto and also a person who's had lived experience of ARDS as a patient. Hi Cheryl. Hello. And we're also joined by Professor Brian Kavanagh, Intensive Care Physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and Professor of Anesthesia at the University of Toronto. Hi Brian. Hey, good morning. Thank you all very much for joining us. So I thought perhaps we could start really with the experience of um, acute respiratory distress syndrome and and I know you're obviously a professor Cheryl but not of in medicine of philosophy but you you have your own experience of ARDS could you tell us a little bit about that Sure um I quite a long time ago in 1998 uh got hit by invasive group A strep and uh ARDS was the thing that uh, almost killed me, or at least was most prominent in the list of things that might have uh, might have killed me. So I spent uh, three weeks in the intensive care unit at uh, one of the University of Toronto's teaching hospitals. Um, I was uh, diagnosed quite quickly with ARDS and intubated uh, quite quickly, but um, it, as I say, was the thing that was uh, most uh, dangerous to me and twice my husband was told that my lungs wouldn't take me through the night uh, I think after a while they just stopped uh, saying that to him mm-hmm. because things uh, uh, did go well enough and obviously I'm here to tell the tale yeah we're obviously glad you are and um, in that experience how quickly did you from sort of coming into hospital did you end up in an intensive care setting well I I was um, uh, quite uh, stupid and didn't take myself to hospital until uh, things were very uh, kind of far gone. So as soon as I arrived in the emergency room, uh, they uh, they saw that I had no blood pressure and I was I was moved very very quickly into the intensive care unit. And and do you remember when you were first told that you'd had acute respiratory distress syndrome, or what did that mean to you as a diagnosis? You mean after the fact? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, when I was brought out of the drug-induced coma, um, they told me all the things that uh, had had hit me, but um, they had also said that my lungs were very badly affected, and, you know, I had pictures of x-rays of my lungs shown to me quite uh, quite frequently, and it was just obvious. Well, actually, they, they um, explained things in, you know, quite simple terms, uh, said that, you know, my lungs were uh, very, you know, kind of like stiff little sheets of paper, and um, I had to stay intubated for quite a long time, and so you know they were they were quite good in uh, telling me exactly what the shape of my lungs was was at the time. And, and how about the recovery process? How did that then affect your life, sort of going onwards from there? Well, it, the recovery process for me was actually quite uh, quite good and quite quick. Um, 
but I had been a very serious athlete before uh, I got hit by this. And so I pushed myself very, very hard. And one thing that I think is really important for um, the medical community dealing with uh, post-ARDS patients is just to, uh, to, to realize how significant uh, an injury this is to one's lungs. So because I had run university track, I had the experience of uh, feeling like your lungs are going to be ripped out of your rib cage <laughs> when, I, when you, you know, run a little bit farther than uh, you had and faster than you had before. And that's what it was like almost all the time. Uh, walking up the stairs, I felt like my lungs were going to be ripped out of my rib cage as if I'd just, you know, kind of bested my last uh, best time in some, in some competition. And I think for a lot of people, they're not going to move um, very much if they're feeling in that kind of distress. And so I think um, the follow-up for uh, post-ARDS patients probably needs to um, be amplified because uh, in many jurisdictions there's just not much follow-up at all. It's really obviously interesting to hear um, Cheryl's experiences and perhaps John you can put this in a little bit of kind of clinical context for us. What What is acute respiratory distress syndrome? Who, who does it affect? How common is it? Um, it's, it's an acute inflammatory lung injury and it, it affects people of all ages um, but it's probably most commonly seen uh, in, in patients in their uh, 50s and 60s um, but it can it can affect uh, children uh, and people at the you know uh, and the elderly as well. It's uh, it's caused by any major systemic insult. Uh, in Cheryl's case, it was a very severe infection, but it can be a major trauma, major surgery, um, uh, or basically anything that you know the body is reacting to, and you get an activation of your immune response, uh, which uh, makes the the lung blood vessels leaky. Uh, and edema then uh, accumulates in the lung. Breathing becomes extremely difficult, and the patient uh, is in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Now, when we mentioned in in the introduction that this is, you know, it's a defining condition in critical care, and and really any any person who develops it, you would expect to be in sort of an intensive care, critical care environment. However. The focus of the, one of the focus of the, the article that you've written is around how it can be missed and it can be missed early on. So even and it, this is an important thing for people outside of a critical care setting, but also in primary care and <coughs> the emergency emergency setting to be aware of. Brian, what 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 is there? What's the evidence, and, and why do we think that it is missed as a condition? And and what can be done in those in those settings? I think um, the the strongest point is Cheryl's description of uh, uh, her course um, uh, because uh, she acquired this outside of hospital. Uh, of course, Cheryl being Cheryl, uh, being the tough athlete that she is, uh, delayed uh, getting medical attention for uh, quite a long time. Um, but uh, thankfully, it all worked out well. But uh, she described very, very clearly just how sick she was when she got to the emergency room. Uh, Cheryl was lucky that the uh, clinical staff in the emergency room uh, were very alert. Um, 
I'm not sure if they were more alert than most emergency rooms, but they were certainly very alert and uh, they recognized and dealt with her uh, in very short order indeed. So the first sort of link in the chain, if you like, is the patient's first contact with the uh, medical community and and, uh, do the clinicians uh, recognize that uh, the patient uh, has ARDS or could have ARDS uh, and its associated conditions. So in Cheryl's case, uh, they did. so that's uh, that that's the that's the most important illustration and evidence for this is a is a tricky concept because um ARDS uh, among sort of the general population is quite rare but among people uh, in hospital is uh, is obviously far more common uh, what we do know is uh, from work that uh, John and others have done is that uh, when patients are in intensive care, that the um, the recognition is is less than it should be, uh, and that the uh, the use of uh, I think fairly uh, fairly well proven therapies is is also less than it should be, and that that evidence is quite strong. Maybe maybe John would uh, would recap on some of that. Uh, yes, uh, uh, the, in, in a large uh, prospective observational study, which was done uh, across 50 countries worldwide uh, and has uh, in, enrolled uh, up to 12,000 patients, what we found was that um, only about 40% of people or patients that fulfilled the criteria for ARDS were recognized uh, and uh, uh, at, at the start of the con- and this is important because uh, some of the supportive measures we do, uh, if we're not careful, uh, can actually exacerbate the condition. And so prompt recognition is really important. And that's why uh, we wrote the article in many respects, because really any, any physician, whether they're in the emergency department or the community, or indeed in the intensive care unit, should suspect ARDS in a patient who's extremely dyspneic uh, and who has signs of acute respiratory failure. It should really be something that, that is uh, right at the top of their list. And, and if, they, uh, you know, if they have a high index of suspicion, they will uh, be more likely to make the diagnosis. And so uh, if... Which then... Carry on. Yes, go ahead, sorry. Sorry, carry on, finish your sentence, uh, would... sorry. Oh, uh, you know, which would then allow us to... Uh, you know, a, implement a supportive strategies in a way that would minimise further harm for the patients. So, so you mentioned that these people who present maybe primary care, most likely in the emergency setting, kind of who are dyspneic, um, uh, appear to be in respiratory distress, clinicians should be suspecting, thinking, could this be ARDS? What, what next? What other things would make them more inclined to be worried about ARDS? What investigation should they do at that stage to either kind of rule it in or, or out? Um, so the, the, the criteria to make the diagnosis uh, are clinical criteria and uh, they, they, are, they have been developed you know, by a consensus methodology. And uh, what you basically need is a check. Sorry, just uh, the line went sorry. a little bit. Um, so, say it was developed by a consensus. Sorry, say that bit again. Uh, yeah, using a consensus approach, right? So, 
Uh, and the tests that you need to uh, make the diagnosis are a chest X-ray and an arterial blood gas uh, sample. Uh, what what you are looking for on the chest X-ray is evidence of a bilateral opacities, which are diffusely spread over the lung fields. Uh, and what you are looking for in regard to the arterial blood gas analysis is evidence of a low blood oxygen level. Um, Brian here. Um, these uh, these criteria are very important. And um, obviously, with uh, first contact with the patient, uh, you would simultaneously get a rough account of the history and a a, a brief clinical exam. So, primary care doctors and emergency uh, medicine clinicians. Uh, will will right away be able to stratify a patient into potentially at risk or not. For example, there will be patients with COPD, um, chronic obstructive lung disease, patients with uh, perhaps rarely with upper airway obstruction, with asthma, uh, with uncomplicated pneumonia, or with other causes of breathlessness. So uh, in most situations, it'll be quite easy to sort of categorize people as um, whether they're at risk or not. The sort of patients that, um, you know, uh, that, that Cheryl exemplified and that John is describing are patients whose, uh, whose lungs are inflamed, uh, would have widespread crackles, usually on examination, and would very, very, would almost always have a evidence of uh, systemic inflammation. The inflammation is not part of the criteria. Uh, the criteria, as John said, uh, fundamentally amounts to infiltrates on a chest radiograph. Uh, that's white spots on the uh, diffusely on the chest radiograph and a uh, low level of oxygen. So having a high level of suspicion uh, obviously doesn't mean that you diagnose everybody. It means that you suspect uh, people and can rule people out pretty quickly. And you, you present evidence in the article that actually it, it is possibly being missed as a diagnosis and I think you, you quote evidence from the Lung Safe study saying that actually 40% of cases um, were not recognised any time during a patient's stay in the intensive care unit, although looking back through case notes, you know, they would have met the criteria. Well, why do you think that it for something that's clearly a very severe and devastating condition, why, why do you think that it does get missed, John? Uh, it's a uh, the uh, the lung safe study collected cri the criteria independently, and so it was able to see patients that did fulfil the criteria which hadn't been recognised. Uh, and in terms of why that happens, we we think that there are a number of factors. Uh, one is that. Uh, these patients generally have multiple serious intercurrent problems. So, uh, say for example, in, in Cheryl's case, she mentioned that her blood pressure was almost unrecordable. And so the doctors would have been very focused. Uh, obviously in her case, they did make the diagnosis quickly, but uh, they would have been very focused on stabilizing her condition and make, getting her blood pressure back up and uh, getting uh, uh, antibiotic therapy on board. And so in that sort of complex, fast-evolving environment where there's a lot of information 
uh, being presented to the clinical team, uh, the diagnosis uh, can form part of an information overload and be missed. Uh, another factor may be that uh, the, the criteria don't have a single uh, sort of diagnostic element so that there's no blood test we can do uh, or, or single finding that means that this patient definitely has the condition. Uh, what, what we have are a set of criteria that when the patient fulfills them, uh, we say that they have ARDS. And so uh, it requires a sort of complex pattern recognition uh, for that to happen. I think that Brian here, I think that uh, that latter point is very important, uh, that this is, um, and it's something that's not really uh, obvious or intuitive to too many people, the difference between a syndrome and a disease. Um, a disease, of course, is something with a singular or fairly straightforward biologic mechanism so that as John said, you could do a blood test or a biopsy or something to, to make the diagnosis and therefore people with this test would have the diagnosis and people without it would not. But a syndrome is when you have a constellation of problems that all sort of look the same, um, but there isn't a single biologic uh, entity. And that means that many patients with very different underlying problems that can all have the same syndrome in common. But if you're looking at their underlying problems uh, in particular, you might miss the fact that they have a common syndrome. And therefore, it's not that these uh, doctors and nurses are, you know, not uh, not paying attention or not providing good care or are not well trained, uh, but they're uh, quite likely uh, distracted, uh, as John put it by information overload and because it's syndromes they're very very likely looking at underlying problems such as sepsis such as shock such as trauma etc uh, without continuing the thought downstream to what is the common impact on the lung because the lung does need independent uh, management uh, for best outcome. Cheryl, did, did you want to come in there? Uh, yeah, so when I s say that I was intubated uh, rather quickly, um, I mean relatively quickly, uh, so there was uh, precisely the kind of situation that is being described by the professionals here. Um, from my perspective, um, there were a lot of people running around, doing a lot of things, putting a lot of lines in me, and I was in the ICU for some hours before uh, it became clear that I needed to be intubated and intubated very, very quickly. Um, although I recall, uh, you know, wondering what was taking them so long, so I couldn't breathe, and they had already said that they were going to intubate me, but it, you know, there was a, I don't know, some number of minutes, mm -hmm. and it was uh, then a, a new emergency. Uh, so they hadn't spotted it right away, and you know, I don't, I don't know whether that made any difference or not, but it was, you know, some number of hours. Sounds like it would have been quite a terrifying experience. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, was there anything that could have made that less so? Or, I don't know, was there anything about the communication or that particularly helped at that point for you? Well, you know, I think that when it's so obvious uh, to the patient even that, you know, things are really, really bad, uh, you know, you are looking for uh, pretty constant and steady communication and reassurance. But, you know, the people in, you know, that were, who were looking after me 
provided that mm. um, uh, pr- you know pretty well I think mm. um, I might uh, I might add yeah. to Brian here um, uh, Cheryl's points are, are very key uh, not just from the human perspective you know as the expression goes if you if you can't breathe and nothing else matters so a minute is a very very long time indeed if you can't breathe um, there are there are several reasons why a patient would need to be uh, intubated that is have a breathing tube inserted and um, attached to a, a life support machine mechanical ventilator uh, beyond ARDS. ARDS is certainly one of uh, the the main reasons, and particularly in a patient who has overwhelming infection, as Cheryl did. But there are other reasons also. So um, clinicians would recognize and should recognize that uh, just because you need um, to have ventilatory support with a mechanical ventilator, it uh, doesn't mean you have ARDS. As uh, John pointed out, it's the the pattern, the the fact that the lungs are diffusely all over both lungs, uh, inflamed, uh, and they're not working. That is to say, the patient has difficulty breathing and is low oxygen. And we talk about why it's important to to recognise this early. And you mentioned before that there are. Um, sort of evidence-based interventions that can be done and and actually the earlier that they're adopted the better um, John what, what are some of those so the the, the, the major principle is that uh, um, we don't have a direct therapy for, for ARDS and so what we're doing is supporting the function of the organs uh, particularly the lungs um, a, while the inflammation and the inflammatory process a, a, you know, runs its course, I suppose. And we also then try to treat the underlying problem. So in the case of an infection, that would require early broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy. Um, but one of the things that's increasingly recognized is that the way that we apply our organ support measures, and particularly the way we ventilate uh, uh, the the, um, the the lungs, we can actually add to the harm. And so the quicker that we can institute strategies where we limit the amount of stretch uh, that the lung is exposed to by the ventilator, uh, the better. And that's been shown to improve survival uh, in, in ARDS sufferers. Uh, then the better for uh, to minimize that injury. Uh, there are also other uh, strategies which involve limiting the amount of uh, intravenous fluids that we give uh, to uh, people with ARDS. And there are strategies that help to improve the oxygenation uh, of the lung. Uh, for example, uh, positioning a patient face down in the prone position uh, helps oxygenation. And so if we can recognize the ARDS in its earliest phases, we can institute these uh, protective measures earlier. And these are really the only strategies we have that can help to improve the outcome. Mm. And uh, Brian, Brian here. The, um, the, the, the points John made are, are very key. It might not be obvious as to why the lungs 
uh, why it's so important to to ventilate the lungs gently uh, is what it boils down to really if you imagine the lungs as a delicate sponge which is pretty well what they are um, then uh, you know large tidal volumes if we if we go for a run uh, for example you you take very deep breaths and that appears to cause little or no harm um, but if the lungs are inflamed and uh, that means that part of the sponge is replaced by uh, becomes waterlogged or becomes stiff then there are there's far less area available uh, to accept a breath and if we drive in a breath with a mechanical ventilator we're pushing a breath into a very small available part of the lung and that lung gets overstretched and damaged the remainder of the lung is already damaged and so this is the cataclysmic uh, cycle um, the other main issue that John said which I think is a key finding of his study is something that frankly frankly comes across as a little weird to people certainly to families uh, that is ventilating patients in the prone position that is face down uh, because you know for as long as patients have been sick they've been nursed in the face up position supine position and there there is immense resistance to turning patients and ventilating them in the prone position and this is unfortunate because the evidence is very strong indeed not only the outcome evidence but the reasoning and the rationale and the immediate responses in many cases to patients whose lungs are damaged if they're turned in the to the face down position prone position uh, their outcome and their lung function uh, improves quite substantially um, and I'm not sure if John wishes to add anything more to that, but that that's a that's a very important point. I was just going to ask uh, John, ask Brian. Sorry, is that is that resistance amongst the clinical community or amongst kind of patient uh, families and relatives who who it, it might seem kind of unintuitive or, or a bit distressing to see their their relative being kind of turned onto their front. Um. No, it's not. Uh, it's not uh, among uh, resistance among families in general. Families, um, Cheryl will tell you this, and Cheryl's family will tell you. Families, you know, for the overwhelming majority of cases, accept whatever treatment is explained. You know, you uh, mo most clinicians have high credibility with uh, with families, most, uh, and rightly so, and most treatments in an emergency or critical care context are accepted and that's that's the way it is which is for the most part a good way but no the the resistance i'm quite certain and maybe john has a, an additional perspective is at the uh, clinician level uh, either you know uh, there, there could be various reasons. People are uh, overly afraid of complications. Uh, people are just not used to doing it. Uh, it is kind of messy at times to turn a very large patient uh, who may who may be heavily sedated, for example, onto their front. Um, a lot of effort is required. Uh, the immediate benefit may not be apparent. And so 
it's sometimes difficult to use an intervention when you can't see an immediate response, although with prone positioning you often do. Um, so maybe maybe John has an additional perspective on that, but that's that's a big that's a big one. Uh, thanks, Brian. I mean, I think when we looked at this in the long safe study, we found that there was quite a bit of geographic variation in regard to the use of prone position, which suggested that you know some uh, some places were just not really aware of the evidence. And uh, um, it, it, the I guess the clinician reluctance comes a little bit from the lack of familiarity with doing this and the fact that it's much more difficult to examine a patient, for example, when they're in the prone position, uh, and fears about complications. But it is interesting to see, uh, or it was in the, in the long-term study, that use of it was higher in Europe, where, it, where the research had been done, uh, than it was in other parts of the world. Mm. So clearly there's an education piece to be done, I think, uh, among clinicians to make them aware of the evidence and to, um, you know, to, to, to work with them to implement yeah. this. Because prone positioning sounds very simple, but it's actually quite complex to do. Mm-hmm. Cheryl, did you want to come in there? Uh, yes, it was very interesting to hear Brian say that there's a physiologic or a medical reason for getting that tube down there quickly before the lung is really injured. Um, I was going to say that from the patient perspective, there is a reason for... Uh, earlier ventilation rather than later because uh, if you can uh, avoid that awful uh, feeling on your patient's part of of spending however long it is uh, drowning because that is literally how it feels when you uh, can't breathe in these situations it just feels like someone's holding your head under uh, you know under the lake and not letting you breathe Um, you know if, if from the patient's point of view the fewer minutes like that the better and very interesting to hear that actually, you know, from an outcomes uh, perspective, uh, the earlier you ventilate, the better. So it's just there's all sorts of really good reason to mm-hmm. to not delay. It's a uh, happy convergence. Yeah. Um, just just because we talked quite a lot there about kind of management in intensive care, and just thinking back, kind of sort of those steps before again. Obviously, lot as you've said, management is is supportive. It is often in a sort of intensive care environment, but we've already picked up on the importance of kind of early recognition and that that does involve you know maybe primary care uh, uh, emergency department what 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 can those non-specialists do what what should they do if they're they're worried about it you know is, is it as simple as involve critical care early you know is is that the message that you want to get across um, um i would sorry john please, please. okay well i would say uh, yes i mean the the urgent referral of these patients for critical care is, is paramount. And uh, to follow up just on, on Cheryl's last point, uh, the patients themselves can actually injure their own lungs by trying really hard to breathe when they're dyspneic. And so um, controlling that, uh, as well as being obviously um, the humane thing to do uh, when somebody feels uh, desperately dyspneic, it actually uh, is an important part of the treatment. And so the the sooner that we can institute gentle ventilation, the more protection we can get from, from doing that. Brian, did you, did you want to add to that? And in, in the article you talk about the morbidity and, and mortality associated and, and thinking about the fact that, you know, there, there are these longer term sequelae and, and effects of having 
experienced of ARDS and Cheryl you mentioned yourself that experience of being at home afterwards and climbing the stairs and still sort of feeling like you know your lungs were the the words you used exactly but your lungs were being torn out of your chest um John perhaps you could comment on you know what are what are the kind of clinical longer term consequences or complications you might expect to see and and is there a role for non-specialists in in being aware of those or even managing them uh, so absolutely there is uh, so in uh, you know 10 or 15 years ago we believed in the intensive care community that when somebody left the intensive care unit they were cured uh, and uh, we congratulated ourselves on that uh, what we've learned in the interim is that uh, the the morbidity from ARDS is really enormous, and that survivors, you know, experience significant ongoing problems, particularly in regards to physical function. Uh, Margaret Herridge in Toronto has uh, done a huge amount of work in this field, and what her group have shown is that at at five years following critical illness, uh, there they these people experience continue to experience motor weakness, uh, they, they've uh, reduced exercise tolerance. Uh, a lot of these patients take a very significant amount of time before they are able to return to work. Uh, in, in her study, less than half of people with a, who had survived ARDS had returned to work at one year, and uh, only three quarters uh, ever returned to work. And many of these patients don't return to the same level uh, of work uh, that they had been at prior to their critical illness. Uh, other major issues that, that patients experience are uh, depression, post-traumatic stress, anxiety. Uh, and so there's a real spectrum uh, of, uh, of disabilities uh, and problems that these patients have to uh, deal with after they leave the hospital. And this is where the, uh, you know, this is where the physicians in the community will uh, have a key role to play because the rehabilitation of people after ARDS really does take years. Does that sound familiar to you, Cheryl? Uh, not so familiar in my own case because I push myself very, very hard. But um, the point that the non-specialist, by which I take the non-critical care physician, uh, needs to be up on this is something that's really important. So, you know, I um, was trying to push myself. I was going back and you know, took tennis up again and trying to do a bit of running, and it was really, really difficult. And I was sent to a respirologist who, on paper, looked very good. Um, and I, well, he said to me, do you not realize, do you not understand what happened to you? Why are you trying to do these things? Why are you trying to you know, run and play tennis? And he said, I'm perfectly happy um, going on my exercise bike in my living room for, <laughs> for 10 minutes, three times a week. Just do that. Um, I was not very happy, and actually this fellow's um, uh, resident uh, wrote down on a slip of paper the email address of Margaret Herridge, who was just mentioned. And so here was, a, here was someone who really knew um, what uh, to expect post-ARDS, which is what she works on, and uh, you know she ran me through some tests and said to me that there's also, uh, they know now, and she, she 
she was one of the people who discovered this, uh, a, a systemic muscle injury for people who have multiple organ failure. And she said, you know, the diaphragm is a muscle, and you know, you've worked on all of your other muscles, perhaps you should work on your mm -hmm. diaphragm. So I hired a personal trainer to put me on a treadmill and teach me how to breathe from the diaphragm, and in literally two, three weeks, uh, the residual problem was more or less gone. But you, we just don't have that kind of knowledge in the, n never mind the, the GP population, but not even in you know the kind of respirologist mm. population. But, and I suppose an important point about though is it's not maybe even necessarily about the knowledge of um, the condition, but also n knowledge of your patient and what's important to them. You know, yeah. the fact that 10 minutes on a bike, sitting on an exercise bike, was never going to be uh, enough for you, and uh, never mind whether that was realistic or not. Yeah. So. Um, Brian here. Um, so th there, are, there are definitely people whose rehabilitation is uh, just not optimized uh, because they're between, you know, among themselves, their caretakers, and everybody else. They they don't um, they don't put themselves in a situation where they can maximize their rehabilitation. Uh, but there are also a substantial number of uh, patients with um, who, who simply cannot rehabilitate in a meaningful way. Uh, there are patients who suffer, for example, uh, clear-cut nerve injury, and sometimes because of pressure on the nerves in the intensive care, but more commonly because the nerves uh, stop working. And in, in a similar way as the muscles can stop working, uh, in many cases these are recoverable, uh, but actually, in some cases, they're not really recoverable. Other problems that people may get, for example, renal failure uh, is, is quite common in uh, patients who have ARDS. Uh, sometimes it recovers. Sometimes the patient's kidneys become quite normal. But sometimes they don't. And so then there's a whole gamut of uh, important uh, psychological um, um, disabilities. Um, post-traumatic stress syndrome, depression, uh, a variety of uh, problems that uh, in many cases are amenable to therapy, but in some cases um, uh, the response would be partial or, uh, or, or uh, incomplete. So there, there's, there's a spectrum uh, and we have to be on the lookout for people who, uh, who can benefit uh, and we got to look out for and try to help people who, who can't benefit to find out other ways that we can uh, help them in their survival. And, and you, you mentioned before about how in the past perhaps um, critical care or intensivists might think that their job work was done after you know someone was discharged from uh, you know, intensive care and I'm sure that's not the case now but are there, you know, do would you be following up where where would you expect someone who's you know who maybe has ongoing um complications or or does need some re rehabilitation where would you expect their care to be organized would it be you know would there be outpatient clinics run you know by anesthetists who'd seen them in icu would it be a respiratory outpatient clinics or does it differ depending on your your location or, or, um, or is it, or is it, it not being done differs. So uh, it, um, it it it's increasingly done, uh, but it uh, there isn't a a single approach, uh, and the approach probably shouldn't uh, always be the same anyway. But uh, one of the approaches being taken is to have 
post-treatable illness clinics. And uh, these are uh, generally run either by uh, respirology or by critical care. And uh, they they deal with the, those kinds of problems around muscle weakness and so forth that are that seem to be common in 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 uh, any patient that has suffered a critical illness. Um, and so I think, I think the key thing is that to recognise that uh, these patients will require a, a, um, a you know an extensive rehabilitation process. And, and in fact, uh, the uh, a, the uh, Nice Institute in the UK have actually developed guidelines around how this should be done. Yeah, so l- let me just add my voice to uh, that uh, call for more post-ICU clinics. So it, when I was discharged, these things, at least in uh, my city, were unheard of. And so I was just discharged into the hands of my GP, who was very young and who felt uh, guilty for not spotting the infection earlier. And it was a nightmare um, because she literally uh, didn't know what to do. And I've often compared... Um, being discharged from the ICU with being discharged after having my knee reconstructed after blowing it out on the tennis court. When you have knee surgery, you are locked into a protocol of really intensive rehabilitation with your surgeon just all over you all the time. If you're not, you know, you don't have quite enough extension or quite enough this, that, or the other thing. And here you, you know, the sickest patients by definition, you know, in the country. Uh, they exit the doors of the ICU into the hands of their GP, no rehabilitation program, n- no thought that perhaps you ought to uh, get yourself to a physiotherapist or a personal trainer or you know, a, a respiratory therapist. Uh, it's just, um, it, it's actually shocking. The sickest patients have the least by way of follow-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's getting much, much better, but it's still, there's a, I think there's a long way to go. Thank yeah, Brian you. here. It's um, it's a complicated business <clears throat> because the the way that uh, patients are affected uh, is is quite variable. Uh, it's unlikely that the expertise to optimize every patient would reside with the same sort of clinician. So Cheryl mentioned many different types of clinicians who could uh, best help, but how they could best help would depend on what the major problem is if you get your your knee fixed it's pretty obvious it's an orthopedic surgeon and a physiotherapist uh, because the the aims are almost the same in every single patient who has had a knee operation a knee replacement um so it could be that your your main problem is um you know neuromuscular and it's quite common and much much more common than previously recognized uh, it could be that it's uh, respiratory. It could be that it's psychological, psychiatric. Uh, so the, this, it's a it's a tricky um, it's a tricky business. But uh, the first the first step is awareness. Uh, that that's the key. Uh, so the people in the medical community and survivors of uh, uh, engage in, in this, and uh, that's that's certainly the beginning of the way forward. So thank you very much uh, again to our authors for joining us today. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Kate. And thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much. We've been discussing an easily missed article on acute respiratory distress syndrome. You can find it on our website at bmj.com, along with all of our other education articles. Thanks very much for listening. You can hear our other podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks very much for joining us.